folks, I think I'm finally settling on a new format. I'll have different kinds of episodes, all more focused than what I had before. If you want to hear me trying to be funny and informative, then this kind of episode, the weekly roundup, is for you. If you want to hear me trying to be analytical and informative, try the briefings. And if you want to hear me trying to be moral and perhaps informative, try out the Torah podcast. And finally, if you want to hear me trying to be human, try out the story episodes. The fun part is, I'm like an opportunistic virus or a highly adaptable bacteria. Whatever you listen to, I'll make more of. And soon, I will overwhelm the body politic. Perhaps. Speaking of my campaign, it is once again experiencing exponential growth. The exponent's a little low, not negative, a little low, but it is still there. If the exponent were to experience a bit of exponential growth itself, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. So you all know what you need to do. Listen, like, share, and subscribe. It's what makes this enterprise click. This weekend, I actually participated in another successful campaign event. Some might call it visiting good friends in another city, but we're all friends, right? So let's not quibble about definitions. Everybody can be right. It was a campaign event, and I visited friends. Our host told me that I need to be louder on the podcast. I wasn't sure anybody actually wanted me to be louder. But again, I'm an opportunistic virus, so I'm louder, perhaps at the cost of some quality. Let me know what you think. During my campaign event slash visit with friends, I spoke with a number of potential voters. Although I'm not sure I convinced anybody about anything, I did learn fascinating things about a variety of people. I'd love to share those stories with you. And you know what? It is my podcast, and I might just do that. But not today. Today, we're going to talk about impeachment. My impeachment. You heard me correctly. I need to plan ahead. I need to plan my impeachment. After I get elected, there are really only three ways I'll leave office. One is to ride into the sunset beloved by my people. We all know that's not going to happen. The second is to be assassinated. However, I'm also sure that won't happen. You see, I'm really leaning towards a VP everybody will like even less than me. That would be Ayatollah Khamenei. The way I see it, nobody will take a shot at me. I'll be safe from assassination as long as I don't plan to attend too many Alexander Ocasio-Cortez campaign events. There is, of course, also sickness, but I can't plan for that. And then, the third option is impeachment. So obviously, it's never too early to plan for my own impeachment. The thing is, I need it to be entertaining. Impeachment isn't just about me, and it is about more than providing much-needed fodder to sustain the U.S. media animal. No, impeachment done right is about giving purpose to people's lives. Every man and woman and even child can engage in a world-defining event. They can take down a destructive president and save America. Or they can protect a hero of the republic for which they stand. Personally, I believe people are drawn to the end of the world as we know it. They want to believe that they live in a unique time in which the countless generations that have come before them have arrived at a point of unique importance. We like to believe our generation matters more than the thousands or millions that came before it. We like to believe the future will be uniquely threatened or blessed by the actions of our times. We are drawn to visions of both the Apocalypse and the Messiah. Sometimes at the same time, it gives our mundane lives meaning. But enough about global warming. Impeachments can provide a great short-term hit to satisfy our human need for consequence. 
but it only works under a few key conditions. First, people really have to feel the consequences. If you've got some little offense to work with, you've got to blow it up into a massive scandal that speaks to trustworthiness. It has got to have weight behind it. It might even be better to have a massive scandal. But that can threaten the second key condition. And what is that second condition? Well, people have to be able to disagree. If everybody wants to can me, that's no fun. It's quick, it's easy, it's painless, at least until Khomeini becomes president. But people disagree? If people disagree, then we can have a proper, drawn-out conflict. With helpful phrases like, I'm going to impeach the Or, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for me. These are the ingredients of a great impeachment. There is a third condition. It is optional, but recommended for extra spice. That is, that everybody involved should have some serious skeletons in their closets. I mean, you've got to have a reason to question or to hate everybody involved in the process. It makes reasons one and two, conditions one and two, so much stronger. If you take me out, not only does Khomeini become president, but you might get a Republican or a Democrat stuff strutting into office. And that becomes a problem if that Republican or Democrat has some serious issues of their own. Only then, when everybody is abhorrent, can you have a true media circus. But getting there isn't easy. I care about you. I care about the American people. So I don't want some impeachment that will just fizzle out or go off without any issues whatsoever. I need a properly conceived impeachment. I owe it to you, my voters. As a podcaster, I'm leaning towards podcast-related issues. Perhaps I could add some regulation about hate speech, define myself as a protected class, and tie everybody who might use a podcast to compete with me up in FCC investigations and regulatory oversight. Those who hate me would be able to point to my abuse of government, while those who love me would be able to point to those evil podcasters who keep saying unnecessarily hurtful things about me and you. I don't really know, though. I'm spitballing. So if you have any ideas about a great impeachment setup and you can help make it happen, let me know. The fate of the Republic hangs in the balance. Of course, despite my internationally successful U.S. presidential campaign, not all the news is about me. Other things have happened this week. Before I get to them, though, a voter, well, he would be a voter if he were American, asked me about the chocolate OPEC story. And I had to tell him, Every aspect of that story, except the bits that couldn't be confirmed or that relied on character assassination, were true. Hezbollah has franchises in Nigeria and South America. There is a chocolate OPEC that came online this year. Ukraine's political money man is called the chocolate billionaire. Biden did write that kid in Milwaukee about chocolate bullets, and Iran's exports of sweets did rise by 13%, etc., etc. So next time somebody brings up the Rothschilds, the Illuminati, or the conspiracy of the elders of Zion and shows you a whole bunch of facts, point them to the real conspiracy, the bitter gold conspiracy. Basically, I use lots of individually true facts to concoct a pretty good conspiracy theory, just like the pros. Although, I did make up bitter gold. Then again, the last time I checked my Jewish handbook, there was no entry under elders conspiracy of. So somebody made that one up, too. Where were we? Oh, yes. Other things that have happened this week. Well, we've got Amazon exploring ways to use your hand to pay for things, Chinese children having their personal data exposed online, the CDC backing off on banning vaping, Chinese birth rates falling to an all-time low, the decline of executive assistance, New Jersey businesses committing tax fraud, although I'm not sure that one counts as news, and white supremacists, terrorists sacrificing a goat in a pagan ritual. Some of that doesn't seem new either, but eh, beggars can't be choosers. So let's start with vaping. 
Back in the 1990s, the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement was signed. In theory, the tobacco companies were paying off the damages their product caused to government finances. But my father, Papa everyone, had a different theory. He pointed out that the settlement protected the position of the big cigarette manufacturers by making it harder for others to enter the market. In return, the government got future payments from smokers. Basically, governments got paid and an oligopoly was protected. It was the definition of crony capitalism. The problem is the governments also got hooked on smoking. Smoking is great for government coffers. It isn't just the cigarette taxes, though. Smokers tend to die young, and they tend to die quickly. When you're looking at ballooning Medicare and Social Security payments, smoking is a fiscal cure for government ills. You retire, you die. Uncle Sam and Little Sammy State get to keep all the money they would have owed you had you survived. If I were a cynic, I might suggest that the problem with vaping isn't about health at all. I mean, 60 people died from vaping illnesses, and almost all appear to have been connected to vitamin E acetate additives, often related to, well, alternative vaping products. 60 people died, and they want to ban vaping. To put that in perspective, 156,000 people in the United States died last year due to lung cancer. And if you didn't already know it, there is a strong correlation between lung cancer and smoking. And the CDC wanted to ban vaping? Oh, and federal cigarette taxes alone have dropped by $4.5 billion over the last 10 years. They have fallen by 25%. Let those facts sink in. And if you were a cynic, you might think tax revenues and the fiscal health of governments have something to do with banning vaping. If, if you were a cynic. Of course, don't blame the bureaucrats and scientists at the CDC. They are just doing a job whose criteria is set by forces far greater than themselves. It might have something to do with bitter gold. While we're on demographics, birth rates keep falling. China is now in the 1.05 births per woman range. Think about that. China's population could drop by 300 million people in our lifetimes. The basketball player Charles Barkley once went on a diet. When asked how much he lost, he'd said, about an eight-year-old. Well, China is about to lose about a United States. And that is if current trends continue. But when you talk about the workforce, it is even more impactful. By 2035, 400 million Chinese are expected to be elderly. That could be 30% of the population not working because they are too old. Given the challenges of a society that still has a per capita income lower than that of Romania, and you begin to wonder how those old people will be fed. The decline in living people in China might be quite a bit sharper than we expect. China could lose a Europe in a couple of generations. China is hardly alone, though. U.S. fertility has hit an all-time low of 1.73 births per woman, and the trend of lowering birth rates, lowering fertility rates, extends throughout Asia and Europe, and to a lesser degree, even the Arab world. Now, if you don't like people, all of this is good news. It is especially good if you don't like old people. After all, the future we can see involves hundreds of millions of old people suffering helplessly as the support structures that might give them a more comfortable old age collapse around them. It's not exactly my cup of tea. This might be why I live in Israel, a wealthy country where secular and religious folk alike are reproducing with jolly abandon. Of course, this population bomb didn't go off all by itself. It was caused. It was caused by two things. One was birth control. The impact would seem to be obvious. But the second was Social Security and government pensions. Basically, if the government will support you in your old age, then you wouldn't need children to do it for them. 
With these two things, we created the biggest free rider problem in human history. Everybody expected everybody else's children to support them in their old age. And so everybody stopped having children. Voila, we have Medicare obligations that won't be honored, Social Security payments that are going to turn into a joke, states choking under pension obligations, and so on and so on. And none of it's going to be solved. It doesn't really matter how much money exists in bank accounts if the working age population lacks the numbers to supply the services, support, and goods their elders need to survive, then life is going to get very uncomfortable. This is one reason that I'm looking forward to the robot revolution. Thankfully, that revolution is coming. You see, over the past 20 years, 1.6 million secretarial jobs have disappeared in the United States. I put myself through college as a secretary. By putting myself through college, I mean I paid just enough that they didn't kick me out. Anyway, 1.6 million secretarial jobs have been replaced. And by what? By apps. Travel apps, meeting apps, communication apps. Siri has replaced Sarah. Alexa has replaced Alex. And Cortana has replaced Chuck. Although there weren't that many secretaries named Chuck. Robots, in one form or another, are replacing manufacturing and, increasingly, administrative jobs. Unfortunately, as we can see in the decline of fertility and marriage rates, they seem to have replaced other sorts of human roles as well. If the U.S. had the same percentage of married couples in 2019 as they had in 2000, then there would be 1.8 million more married couples. Rewarding personal relationships? Apparently there's an app for that. It brings a whole new meaning to the idea of sleeping with your secretary. But perhaps the robots will take care of us as we get older. After all, they've learned to take care of each other. Automated power plants provide electricity to support automated meeting scheduling systems. It's only a matter of time before the automated meeting systems start scheduling meetings with each other. Perhaps in our future, instead of a caring child helping us to a doctor's appointment as we age, we'll have a robot assigned to Fleshbag123432 that conveys us to our self-driving car, which drives us to an automated robot doctor and picks up fresh coffee from an automated machine along the way. Everything will be so smooth and seamless. It will all be so perfect. I, for one, can barely wait. Of course, I'm married to a real human being, and I have six children, so I might just miss out on this incredible futuristic vision. But I did have a friend who was recently a witness to the future. He was in China, where you can no longer buy things in cash, and where people are blessedly unaware of government sins like Tiananmen Square. It all seems so harmonious and perfect. He described coming to a crosswalk where images of prior jaywalkers were broadcast together with their names. It was a form of public shaming to be followed up with real repercussions for the scuff laws involved. I think my friend admired what he saw, but I'm afraid that I can't. Personally, I think a little disorder and lawlessness is good for society. A little chaos helps the society grow and move and adapt to the changing world around it. We might be taken over by robots, but I hope that our society would remain a living, breathing thing. Because a culture should have life, not just function. And that life needs a little mutation and adaptation. To use an analogy from a book I'm a fan of, we should be like rocks joined by plaster. We shouldn't be forced into complete compliance, like bricks shaped and mortared together. I think the Lego movie said something about this. Not surprisingly, that movie was not allowed to be shown in the Chinese market. Yes, there are costs to allowing people to do shady or stupid things, but those costs are a small price to bear for the benefit of having society blessed by organic growth and self-definition. Long-term, political systems meant to establish universal compliance are not only abused by those in power, they wither in the face of a changing world. I find that idea comforting. You see, I like to jaywalk once in a while.
Of course, on the other extreme, you had New Jersey. Apparently, a bunch of New Jersey businesses committed tax fraud by only pretending to plan to leave New Jersey, and thus negotiated special tax breaks with the government. This story combines stupid government policy with, well, New Jersey. I wouldn't be surprised if the whole policy was put in place for the purpose of enabling the fraud. Oh well. While mold and rot also fit into the category of a living, breathing culture, I'd hope we could aim for something a little higher than that. Speaking of China, again, a bunch of children had their personal data exposed online. This was a huge controversy, although I can't quite figure out why. You see, the government recently ran a project where they fitted children with brainwave monitors all day, every day in school. Then they took it to the next step. The monitors changed colors so the teachers could see which students weren't paying enough attention. I have to say, if a teacher needs an LED to detect that a kid is zoning out, you might want to get another teacher. But then they took it another step. They published each kid's performance with their names so parents could be shamed or proud if their kid was good at paying attention. Everybody in the school, and given the nature of the data, anybody else who cared could see how each kid was performing. And then, just in case that wasn't enough, there was a suggestion that parents and children could have their social credit scores, which impact things like the ability to travel or own a mobile phone, be dinged by poor performance. Thankfully, this raised a stink on Chinese social media. But the government is patient. They'll just step into it a little more slowly next time. In a society where you can be destroyed by protesting the wrong things, it is really nice to see explosions of social controversy on the edges. And child privacy really is the edge. First, there are fewer and fewer children in China. And second, as soon as they become adults, all the gloves are off. Nonetheless, they are objecting to something when they can. Chinese mainlanders may not be able to talk or even know about Tiananmen Square, but it doesn't mean they've been formed into perfect human bricks. China has 18% of the world's population, and they've occupied far more than that amount of this podcast. So if I were at Ivy League University, reverse affirmative action would have clicked in a long time ago. So I think it's time I stopped talking about them. Thankfully, we have another Borg-like entity to talk about. Amazon. Amazon wants to enable you to pay for things with a wave of your hand. They'll have your credit card data, they already do, and they'll mix in your fingerprint data, which Google probably has, and then your hand will become your bank. Can you imagine how much this would mess up future anthropologists? For untold centuries, we've said hi by waving. It's a non-threatening gesture of peace. And then in a few years, it gets transformed into a method of buying things. The opportunities for misunderstandings are enormous. Of course, when you think about people who wave, the queen comes to mind. Imagine the bill that would come due if she was unwittingly sharing something other than goodwill. No wonder Meghan Markle and Prince Harry wanted nothing to do with royalty. They may have given up millions of dollars by leaving the family, but by avoiding the whole going to public events and waving things, they'll probably end up saving billions. Of course, it is possible they've partially withdrawn from royal life for purely administrative reasons. You see, Megan is an American citizen. She has to file paperwork on all of her overseas holdings. Can you imagine the issues that having some sort of stake in a public royal trust would have with your IRS reporting? Does the royal family really want to be in a hawk to the IRS? The Queen might be surprised by Meghan's move, but I imagine secretly she's rejoicing. If you ask my potential VP, Khomeini, you'll know why. She doesn't want all those secret Rothschild accounts exposed. Looking back over the stories of the day, I see something light and fluffy with which we can end this episode. Goat sacrifice. Yes, you heard me correctly. Apparently a bunch of militant white supremacists were planning on shooting up a pro-gun rally in Virginia. I guess the theory was that you'd eliminate those pansies who weren't willing to do everything it took to stand up for true white liberty and ethno-supremacy. It isn't much of a theory, but the bar is kind of low with these folks. 
Anyway, as part of the build-up to this operation, they apparently held a ceremony where they carried out the sacrifice of a goat as part of a pagan ritual. During my campaign trip, I was discussing the concept of gateway drugs. I think when dealing with mass-murdering white supremacists, we ought to consider pagan goat sacrifice a gateway drug. So here's my advice to all my white supremacist listeners. If your friends ask you to join them in a pagan goat sacrificing ritual, just say no. I'm sure if children everywhere remembered that simple idea, we'd be able to solve the problem of racial violence in America. Well, folks, that's it for the campaign updated news. As mentioned before, I'm breaking this podcast up by content type. The stories will still be available on another episode. So will in-depth briefings and the occasional religious screed. You can pick what you want to listen to. Or to quote from another media outlet, I talk and you decide. Spread the word and let's bump up our audience numbers. After all, if growth is exponential, then every little bit helps, eventually. Thank you, and have a great week.